This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Tyler Cowan who is the Holbert L. Harris Chair of Economics at George Mason University. Tyler, how's it going? Hello, Jimmy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on the show, Tom. Happy to be here. All right. So I'd like to start with a very basic question of how you became an economist. How did that work? What, what happened? Why? I was really quite young, I guess 13, when I started being interested in economics. And I went to the public library and pulled down whatever books I could find. And I was also very interested in philosophy. So I started reading Plato's dialogues. And I thought, well, I'll either be an economist or a philosopher. And once I learned a little about the two options, it became clear to me economists were both paid more and had an easier time finding jobs. Even back then that was true. And I thought I would become an economist but in a sense, I've maintained interests in philosophy, as you know. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting that you uh, you made that trade-off. Um, I didn't put that one together. I probably should have. Um, so I wanted to start with something that you said a while ago. It's one of the ways that I even came to know who you were. I, it was a few number of years ago, and you talked about economic growth being a moral imperative. And I think to a lot of people's ears, that's a really strange claim. Um, we don't really associate economic growth with morality or ethics. I think people think that with like business and profits and that sort of thing. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate what you meant by moral growth being a moral imperative or, or morally important, morally weighty. Well, if one society has a sustainably higher rate of economic growth than another, after a matter of decades, and indeed you could say centuries, the wealthier society will be a much better, nicer, more humane place to live. Uh, you will live much longer. You will, on average, have far less pain. Uh, women's rights will be much stronger. That country is more likely to be democratic, more likely to be able to help out other countries. You will have a far greater capability to be charitable. And whatever exactly you think the virtues may be, I think those virtues stand a better chance in expected value terms of doing well in the wealthier society. So for me, economic growth, sustainable growth, is indeed a clear moral imperative. Can someone push back though and say something like, well, isn't moral growth what also allows us to do things like produce nuclear weapons, climate change, um, AI, maybe it's hostile AI. So maybe wealthier nations and societies are more able to engage in existentially risky behavior. How do you balance that out in your, in your mind? Well, you can start by looking at it from the point of view of a single country, right? So if you're a single country and you do not grow and you don't progress much at all, odds are you will be taken over by some other country. Your only hope of being saved is if some other wealthy country defends you, the way United States, you know, at times defends other countries around the world. So viewed at the level where actual policies are made, uh, the biggest existential risk you need to be wealthy to fend off. Now, the other points you raise, I would just consider them uh, one by one. We may not be sure, but arguably nuclear weapons have helped peace and growth. Uh, it's fine to be uncertain, 
but I would rather strongly advocate we do a great deal to make nuclear weapons safer and to lower the risk of nuclear war for exactly this reason. Uh, climate change and pollution, keep in mind that those are both uh, massive problems in very poor societies, which have very few resources available. So in the world's poorer countries right now, six to seven million people die each year due to air pollution. I don't mean some sort of carbon mechanism. I just mean flat out terrible air pollution. So as you become wealthier, you're able to put that behind you. But again, my notion of sustainable growth absolutely implies that today's wealthy countries should do much more to curb carbon emissions, something like a carbon tax. One quick follow-up. So I'm wondering too, if when you talk about the benefits of economic growth, if those could easily be uncoupled from the economic growth itself. So I'm wondering if it's not just economic growth that's doing the work here, it's like cultural features, like maybe the fact that it's weird societies, which are, you know, Western educated, individual, rich and democratic. Um, and you might worry that like, it's not really moral or economic growth per se, that's the moral imperative. It's economic growth plus, I don't know, some number of cultural norms. Well, I, I would decouple it maybe, but in a slightly different way. I think of rate effects and level effects. So a lot of the benefits of growth are from level effects. Maybe in a given year, your economy's in recession, not growing. But because, say, you're Denmark, your lives are still quite good. I do think there's a separate benefit from momentum that if in a given year growth is positive, at any level, people will be happier, more tolerant, more hopeful. And I think those are conceptually distinct. Uh, but I'm not sure what it means to separate, you know, growth from like either the preconditions or the, or the causes of growth. So if you had a bunch of people who are weird in the Joe Henrich sense, and somehow they could never grow, right? Like taxes are too high or something. Uh, they would lose those properties of weird. You know, they're not like, it's not programmed in their genes from eons ago. It's because they have favorable institutional conditions that reward relatively rational thinking and build and sustain a certain set of cultural norms. Well, that's a fair point. Um, but moving on to other moral stuff, I was listening to your podcast with Ezra Klein, and I was struck by a discussion you had with him talking about how we should treat people in the future, even the distant future, as morally on par with present persons, which struck me as correct. But I also thought, do we discount future people because of the epistemic side of things? So I might think like, of course, a person in the future counts as much as I do, right? Like the mere fact that they're in the future seems morally irrelevant. Right. But I'm more certain that I exist and there are people who exist now than say a thousand years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, the further I go out. So are people discounting future persons, not for moral reasons, but maybe for epistemic ones? What do you think of that? Uh, I agree we should discount the future for risk. So maybe the people simply won't be there would be the simplest case of a risk, but not the only one. Uh, but notice that does not operate the way traditional discounting does, which is steady and exponential and correlated with time. So, uh, you know, you should think about how to discount for risk. And I think it's absolutely rational to do so. But again, it won't look like discounting for time, not in general. No, that's a good point about discounting for time. Yeah, I thought that. Um, that's a good point. Uh, you also were talking about UFOs, and by that I just mean unidentified flying objects, right? Right. 
um, that seems to have garnered a lot of national attention lately, and um, which delights me because I'm a big X-Files fan. Uh, but you've said in multiple podcasts that you don't find arguments from elimination to be very persuasive. Correct. So this is where, like we say, well, it can't be Russia, it can't be China, it can't be the United States, whatever this is. Perhaps it, for physics reasons, it can't be a natural phenomenon. So we're left with aliens, let's say, right? Right. Uh, and I'm wondering how this, uh, how in your mind, arguments from elimination differ from inference to the best explanation. So it seems like inference to the best explanation is something used by scientists, doctors, detectives. Uh, it's a quite a valuable tool, quite useful. And they seem to be very similar in that I take a set of explanations, right? And I zero in on the one that does the, the best job across a lot of criteria, right? Now, that's not the only thing I do, but I'm wondering what you think is the difference and, and why one is better than the other, maybe? Well, I think when it comes to UFOs, we humans are very poor at imagining all the possible explanations or, or weird things that could be going on. So I have no problem if someone uses an argument from elimination to think, well, UFOs maybe most likely are space aliens. I'm not saying I agree, but I understand the logic, but you still should then think the chance of that being true is quite small because your list of what's on the menu is extremely defective. So it's people who rather confidently rule out, you know, seven different things on the menu and then, oh, well, it really has to be those space aliens. I think that uh, is fallacious because we don't know what's on the menu. So simply the, say the possibilities that it's a disinformation campaign. I'm not saying it's that. I'm just saying if I honestly ask how much do I know about disinformation campaigns run by our government, I know really very little, right? I'm not able to judge all the different weird things they might do. And it seems there's a lot of options where I'm just not able to, to figure out what all the alternatives are. So I take the notion that they're some result of space aliens seriously, but I think it's a low probability, but I think a low probability is nonetheless an extremely important estimate. Let's say it were 2%. My goodness, that's big news. Well, it actually sounds like what you're saying is, is something similar to a philosopher of science who taught at San Francisco State when I'm getting on that degree. great. Uh, his name is Boston Frothen. I don't know. And, yeah, well, yeah, he does philosophy of science. He has, this, he has this objection to inference to the best explanation. He says, if you're taking like a set of hypotheses and you're trying to find which one explains something the best on this criteria, like explanatory scope, explanatory power, simplicity, et cetera, et cetera. He says, the problem with that is you may have a bad lot. He goes with a bad lot objection. So you might just, it just be that you're, the set of hypotheses you're able to come up with just isn't very good. Right. So the example he uses is like pre-Darwin, I might think like, well, of course God had to create the world because they're, it's so orderly, it looks so well designed. And the only option is chance. That's the only thing I can come up with. And surely chance isn't a good explanation. So that leaves me with God. Right. Then Darwin comes along and says, well, there's this third option, right? Evolution by right. selection. So it sounds like a sort of a similar thing to what you're saying about us not being able to like imagine other or be, being very good at imagining other explanations in this space. That's correct. I would add the additional point that, you know, explanation is not a fixed thing. It's a matter of degree. And what really counts as an explanation? Let's say, in fact, we're space aliens. And you said, oh, it's space aliens. You haven't actually explained it very much. You haven't given a very good explanation, even if that's a true claim. 
So, you know, I would start by disassembling our understanding of how good the explanation can be if you go in the space aliens direction. So it's not, in that sense, the best explanation. Whereas if somehow you figured out it were a CIA disinformation campaign, that might be murky, but it's kind of pretty readily a very clear explanation if it's true. Yeah, you, I mean, you, you're echoing Von Frost and again. He, he calls it the gap argument. Right. A lot of times things that are true aren't very explanatorily helpful. Exactly. Like, like you can think it's true and it could be true. It just doesn't explain much. Right. Um, I, I find this with a lot of theories of physics. So like, you know, many worlds hypothesis or whatever your favorite cosmology might be. Uh, I, would, I, I would say I'm quite agnostic on the question, but I read about all of them and none of them seem very explanatory to me. They don't seem more explanatory than God. And I think a lot of secular people feel they are. They have this intuition because they start by being secular. And I just don't find that so persuasive. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. Um, this, this happens a lot in the um, in the debate over the fine-tuning argument. So a lot of people think the fact that it, it looks like if you were to vary any of the basic physical forces, like strong or weak force, the strength of gravity, you know, there's a lot of different things. There's a lot of like parameters or constants in the universe. If you were to vary them ever so slightly, and I mean to like of a 1% or something, you wouldn't have life as we know it. You wouldn't have... Right second and third generation stars. And so the big contenders in the philosophy space are God versus the multiverse. Right. Right. I don't really find either one of them very impressive. I don't understand either one of them, I would say. I'm not even sure what I'm weighing. But I have yet another criticism of the, you know, best available explanation argument when it comes to space aliens. People assume the only thing you need to explain is why the UFOs appeared. But if they are space aliens, there's a bigger puzzle. And that is, why isn't the sky full of them? Because if they get here at all, presumably they're coming from a civilization where energy, if not literally free, is quite readily available and plentiful. So just like in a Star Trek episode, there's the Federation, there's the Klingons, there's the Romulans, they're kind of all hanging around. And we see so few of them. And that becomes a new thing to explain and we seem to have no good explanation for that. So the notion that there's only one thing to explain on the table, like what are those things in the Navy videos? I think that too is prejudging the matter in an epistemically dangerous way. I had a point to that? Yeah, yeah. It, it strikes me also as weird that people think, they do this thing where they go argument for elimination. So they say, well, it can't be like, you know, Russian technology, it can't be Chinese technology, it can't be European, you know, and on down the list. It can't be a natural phenomenon. And then I think, well, wait a minute, that, those technologies don't exist now. But if people like eternalists are true, these are, these are folks who think the past, present, and future are equally real, they may be from the future. In other words, they may be humans from the future. I'm not saying this is true, but you're going to rule that out, right? It's not, it's not obviously more absurd than thinking it's space aliens. Right. That's my point. It's not. Right. So, but 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 then we have these two competing hypotheses. We have future humans who have the technology, and we have extraterrestrials. But why is the extraterrestrial explanation better? It's not clear why it is. Also, also with the future humans, I wonder why there wouldn't be more of them. Sure. I mean, the Eiffel Tower is pretty crowded, right? Yeah. Uh, Venice is is full of tourists. So that only these entities appear 
in particular ways, times, and places, it seems, is part of what needs to be explained. And that throws a curve into all the explanations, I think, except maybe for a few. You know, I don't think it's Chinese drones buzzing Navy ships, but the nice thing about that explanation is it, it fits the cross-sectional variation. Namely, a lot of them are filmed by Navy ships or pilots. I want to switch gears here. I'm very interested in what economists call rent seeking. And the reason I'm interested in this is because I worry that rent seeking is a is sort of the um, it's sort of the dead weight on the economy. It's something that um, it, Michael Munger argues this at Duke. He says at some point companies switch gears from being productive companies to switching to rent seeking as a way to make money. And I'm wondering what you think of rent seeking. I want, I want, I'm curious if you could like tell us a little bit of what it is and if it's as much of a problem as I think it is, and if it is, what we can do to mitigate it. So it's a three-parter. Well, I have deeply revisionist views on rent seeking. In uh, the early 90s, I published a paper with Amahai Glazer and Henry McMillan uh, on all this. It's called Rent Seeking Promotes the Provision of Public Goods. I don't think there's a clear distinction conceptually between rent seeking and profit seeking. So supposedly profit seeking leads you to do good things like build Amazon, the company, and rent seeking leads you to do bad things like lobby for a law to restrict entry you know, for your business. And you take some legislators out for expensive steak dinners and those are wasted resources. Uh, it seems to me that organizations develop rents as part of their organizational culture I'm not saying that's always good, but they're an inherent property of stable organizations. They help keep stable organizations stable. And often the way you get rent is by doing good things for people. So for instance, in, in China, if you wanna rake off corruption, very often the way you do it is to get some new roads or new projects built or mass transit. And on average, those projects have turned out to be highly beneficial. So I'm not arguing profit and rent seeking are literally identical, but the clear distinction between the two has never satisfied me. I think there are all sorts of different ways of seeking transfers with various mixes of public goods and public bads. And I don't wanna draw so sharp a line. A separate point, but not irrelevant, is if you try to measure, well, rent seeking in the traditional sense, like taking out the lobbyists for steak dinners, like how much does that destroy in terms of resources? The different measurements of rent seeking, they don't add up to all that much. I live right outside of Washington, DC. You do too now. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here, but in the broader scheme of things, it's tiny relative to what's being allocated. And I don't think it's a major drain on the US economy. So I think we don't understand rent seeking very well. It seems like it cuts against a lot of um, the economists that I've read and the economists and philosophers that I've read, this seems to be very unorthodox, which is, doesn't make it wrong. But Yeah, I called it revisionist. Yeah. Uh, but I think in a way it's reductionist and, you know, Quinean, you might say, since this is a philosophy podcast, like what, what is rent seeking depends on the framework you're operating in. So if someone at a very large, you know, Fortune 500 company, uh, builds up their division just so they can get a bigger raise, you might think, well, that's a kind of corporate rent seeking. But on the other hand, it means there's autonomy for subunits in the corporation 
And that's part of what holds the company together. So depending on the level at which you ask the question, something can look like beneficial cultural capital or destructive rent seeking. And in a way, both perspectives are correct, but there's something relativistic going on here. This actually strikes me as, uh, as parallel to discussions of corruption in various countries. So there, there are some countries, Mexico is one of them, um, where certain kinds of corruption, you might argue are societally beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really take a lot of money out of your pocket. You end up getting a lot of favors and you end up not really paying a lot of taxes to services anyway. So it's sort of just a roundabout way of paying taxes. Right. Um, and it really just depends on the particular kind of corruption, the circumstances of society, <clears throat> that, that what we would consider to be corruption um, sort of has anywhere from a negative to a neutral to a positive valence, depending on context, time, place, culture, et cetera. That seems very similar to what you're saying about rent seeking. Yes, and keep in mind, during America's so-called golden age, maybe you could dispute that description, but the country was fairly corrupt, right? Late 19th century America. And somehow it turned into this much better, nicer country. I, I would agree with that description, but I think you need to look back a bit and see that corruption did create some incentives for growth also, as it has in China. So I'm gonna stick with Mike Munger because he has this very interesting book called Tomorrow 3.0. And roughly he argues that apps like, Google, um, like Uber, these are platforms where you can rent things or get people to do things for you. Um, are going to really trans transition us into an area where we do a lot more renting than buying. So his classic example is the drill. He says, whenever people buy drills, typically they don't want to drill. They want like two holes here right now because they're hanging something up, right? Like a picture frame or TV. Yeah. Or um, so it would make more sense just to rent the thing if you could do this efficiently and lower transactions costs. So he thinks this is going to usher in a new... Um, era, sort of like the Industrial Revolution, where the norm is to rent rather than to buy. I'm curious what you think about that thesis. I wonder if he doesn't have it backwards. So I read that thesis a lot, say, seven years ago. You know, Uber is new. It seemed like the Uber model could be applied to so many different things. But you look at the pandemic, there's this incredible upsurge of expenditures on consumer durables, people wanting to own things, people wanting to work around the house partly as a hobby or avocation, or to not feel bored. And people invested in larger, better structures overall, the prices of those have gone up. And most of all, people have just bought to own things for the home, which to me seems like the opposite of that claim. And if you ask like which of the rental models have really taken off and turned into noticeably large companies, obviously Uber, uh, you, you know, DoorDash, I wouldn't quite say you're renting the food any more than you're normally renting the food, like you're always renting the food, it passes on through. I just don't see so many examples of the rental model uh, that are significant, like in terms of GDP or unicorns. So, so far I disagree, it could change, right? Plenty is gonna change, but I'll say no. Yeah, I mean, just just a, a little just a quick follow-up. You might have thought the same thing about the Netflix model in the era of Blockbuster. So if you look at Blockbuster in like 2011, 2012, Blockbusters are everywhere. And, and Netflix just, I mean, you really don't see it coming in the same way, right? Like it, it seems yeah. like Blockbuster is going to be there forever. Their Blockbusters are in a corner. And then a few years later, they're just gone, right? Right. I mean, could, that, could, 
could you do you think that maybe that's what's going on with this is sort of the last gasps of owning rather than renting i don't know you know at the very moment obviously streaming is popular and i don't know if you should think of streaming as owning or renting so you stream there's typically but not always an expectation that it will always be there you don't own the ip to the netflix content but you invest in a tv show with the knowledge you can go back rewatch the sopranos when you want on hbo uh it seems something different than either owning or renting and that's the current trend i wouldn't pretend to be able to predict the future trend other than that i do see a lot of room for it to change quickly in whatever direction but well, renting, I, I don't know renting to me is a pain in the neck i don't like to rent things i want to click buy and throw it out maybe maybe that's the trend things will get really cheap and there'll be a lot more garbage. That's what I hope the trend, because I'm really good at throwing things out. That's actually going to be my last question on this, which is, it seems like, so there's a lot of studies now that show that burglary is going, it's going down precipitously. And one of the explanations in the literature, on the criminology literature, is that consumer goods have gotten much, much cheaper over time. Right. It's just more costly to break into someone's house compared to what the benefits you'll get from the stuff you'll take. And I wonder if if things if consumer guns become super cheap relative to where they were 10 years ago, if renting doesn't make that much more sense than buying, given they're much cheaper just to own it, right? I mean, sort of like you right. were saying. Right. And it could be the new form of break-in, which we see already is a cyber attack. Uh, and those take varying forms, but often they simply immobilize what you own. They don't take it, right? So it's a sort of a blackmail model. Like I'll give you back access to your database, uh, which you still own in some sense, but can't get at if you pay someone in crypto. So that's yet another model. So on your podcast, conversation with Tyler, you do a lot of, um, usually in the middle, underrated and overrated. I'm game. So I thought what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Absolutely. All right, Plato, do you think he's overrated or underrated? Why? Well, it, de it depends by whom, but I'm of the view that Socrates was a significant but ultimately minor Greek figure who was not that impressive, and Plato put together the pieces, just like a Beatles demo and a Beatles song are very different creations. So I think Plato's underrated and Socrates overrated within the philosophical community. Uh, Obviously, to just ordinary people who don't read, Plato's also going to be underrated, but that's a more trivial observation. I'm a big fan of Plato. I'm not that impressed by Socrates, with apologies to Agnes Callard. Well, putting that aside, uh, Darwin, Charles Darwin. I think Darwin is underrated. He's one of the best British writers of the 19th century. All of his books are amazing. You know, the work on emotion, Descent of Man, those are just incredible books. And he's known for Origin of Species, which is deserved, but I think still significantly underrated. And my friend Ami Glazer would agree with me. He's a huge Darwin fan and should be. According to the philosopher Daniel Dennett, Darwin's had the best idea anyone's ever had. And I'm tempted to agree with that. I know you're a, a, I know you're a big foodie. Um, I'm wondering what you think of the pumpkin spice trend. You know, to be Hansonian for a moment, eating food often isn't about food. Like avocado toast, it tastes fine, but it's become a thing. And pumpkin spice has become a thing. 
So if something has become a thing, it's to position yourself in some social way, and that's going to make it overrated. I'm really not interested. I do very much enjoy eating pumpkin. I think it's an underrated food in general. Like, hey, just go eat some pumpkin. Like Afghani kadu is amazing. Uh, in that sense, pumpkin is underrated. And earlier America was quite taken with eating pumpkin. Somehow it's faded. But it's it's way better than a lot of the vegetables we push on people. The field of economics, what you do, is it overrated or underrated? Again, this is a by whom question. I think what is economics is dissolving. Economics is turning into a branch of data science, for better or worse. Uh, that means, in my view, microeconomic theory has become underrated by economists themselves. But the thing we're assessing overall, economics, is dissolving before our eyes. And in that sense, maybe it's overrated. It's like almost not existing anymore. All right. How about higher education? Overrated or underrated? Well, it's underrated by my colleague, Brian Kaplan, who thinks it's, you know, 80% about signaling. Uh, I think there's a huge problem with people who do not finish, right? That is a problem, social problem, individual problem. But for people who do finish, what they learn in terms of networking, dealing with different personality types, how to think about the world, getting a few very basic conceptual frameworks. I think higher ed is mostly about learning. So, uh, but that's the standard view. So I would say properly rated, but underrated by a few dissidents. On the global stage, do you think the United States as a country is overrated or underrated? We have a lot of social capital and social influences, or I think you called it soft influence is your term? Soft power, yes. Soft I think our ability to run conspiracies is much overrated by most of the world. Uh, but I think our importance and resilience is probably underrated. So I, I'm skeptical about some aspects of how China is evolving. I see Europe is largely technologically stagnant. The English language is more important than ever due to the internet. The major tech companies are basically US creations. North America geopolitically is as safe a region as you could hope to design. So I'll say largely underrated but not its power to run conspiracies. People there think all kinds of crazy things that just aren't true. You think that's changing? Do I think words, it's changing? With the rise of China, the Afghanistan pullout, the coronavirus pandemic, there's a lot of stuff. Right? Um, do you think that, 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 that that's uh, changing or going to change? I've seen data. My suspicion is that it's a growing population of conspiracy theories. It's not zero sum and there's room for everyone at the table. Chinese conspiracy theories are rising. Uh, I'm not sure those about the US are falling, but in percentage terms, almost certainly, yes, they're falling. And the conspiracy theories now within the US, one faction or the other, the Russians, the election, the Trump, the this, the that, those clearly are rising, right? And that's within our country. Within the United States, do you think the founding fathers are overrated or underrated? I don't know. I mean, it depends on the founding father. To me, it's still impressive that George Washington created a true line of succession. Uh, I think, In that sense, he's underrated, but the extent to which all of these people, in addition to their role as enslaving others, uh, murdered or very badly treated 
what we call Native Americans or Indians, that's still underappreciated, I think. So in that sense, they're morally overrated. Uh, I'm very much a fan of Washington and Madison. I suppose Adams. Jefferson, to me, clearly seems overrated. I read him. I just don't learn that much. It's supposed to all be about liberty. I don't know. I don't quite see it. When you look at the whole life, the Alien and Sedition Act is two terms. Sally Hemings, the slaves. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't love Jefferson. Recently had Christopher Columbus slash Indigenous Peoples Day. And I'm curious if the United States of Christopher Columbus is now overrated, underrated. You know, I still view him primarily as a, a mass murderer uh, and a conqueror and a bad guy. So I think the hard left woke take on Columbus is pretty close to true as does my colleague, Brian Kaplan. So most people overrate him, you know, morally at least. Now maybe his impact, you know, do they underrate that, just his positive impact? I don't know, like clearly other people would have come, kind of done the same work one way or another, I strongly suspect. Uh, but I spent a lot of my life, you know, hanging out with indigenous Mexicans who were kind of the original Aztecs. And I've heard a lot about their perspective on those who came over. And I just think they're, they're bad human beings who did evil stuff. What about the Beatles? Were the Beatles overrated or underrated? And continue Beatles to be overrated. grossly underrated. Hmm. If you actually study their songs from the point of view of music theory and study their production, uh, I think they're amongst the greatest musical creators of all time. Of course, I would put them way behind Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and some others. But in what is misleadingly called popular music, it seems to me they're a clear first. Uh, there's not really serious competition. That would include people like Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder? Oh, it's not even close, sure. Look, in the Beatles, you have the two greatest musical figures of their age in the same group. That's incredible. Michael Jackson had a good run. Even he was in awe of Paul McCartney, much more than vice versa. And there's a universality and span to the Beatles that I don't think Michael Jackson has ever had, though I'm a big Michael Jackson fan. And finally, the open borders view, Brian Kaplan's view, Jason Brown's view, do you think it's overrated or underrated? Well, most people don't rate it. I mean, I think it would be civilizational suicide to have truly open borders. I definitely favor a big increase in immigration for the United States say like 3X, something significant, that itself is politically impossible. The actual result would be when citizens feel they're not in control, they will elect politicians who are quite nasty and quite willing to shut borders. So I think the movement is counterproductive. Uh, we see already people view the Democratic Party or parts of the Democratic Party as an open borders party. That's a little misleading. But it's still true, they're just very reluctant to ever have to send anyone back, even though they don't want explicitly open borders. There's an open borders element to that. Uh, hurt the Democrats severely, helped elect Trump, which in my view was, was quite a bad thing. So I think it's a, a terrible idea, but analytically it's wonderful. It, it's like on the right track. Like you wanna boost immigration as much as you sustainably can. It's part of boosting sustainable economic growth. But you've got to put the word sustainable in there, front and center. And the open borders advocates don't really do that. 
I wanted to follow up with an argument that a lot of open borders advocates use. And I, and I agree with you. I'm very sympathetic to immigration. I think it's a very good thing. I think there's a lot of wonderful immigrants who would make the world or make our country a much better place. Including my wife. Yes. But a lot of times when I, when I deal with folks on the immigration stuff who are open borders people, they use what I would call the parity argument. So if you want to keep folks out for things like uh, criminality, disease, um, illiberal social norms or cultural norms, um, overcrowding, et cetera, they'll usually say something, one of two things. Either they'll run a parity argument and they'll say, well, can we kick people out for those exact same reasons? So some of the citizen, can we deport them? Which they take to be a bad thing. We, we can't do that. Or they'll say something like, well, the reason you're not going to get a flood of people that results in uh, being inundated is because of things like pricing and supply of housing, transportation, roads, resources, et cetera. For the same reason that I don't pack up and move to San Francisco. So it's too expensive, right? So it's not that keeping me out legally. There's no guards at the border. I just don't want to pay the prices that they charge for rent. I'm curious what you think about those, those responses. Do, they, do you find them convincing? Uh, not at all. There, there were numerous different issues in there. But I'll just say, as a country, the United States has many forms of anti-immigrant law other than formal immigration restrictions, and NIMBY is one of them. So if the way you enforce immigration law is by not letting poor people live on the streets and sending them back to Honduras, wherever, I mean, that's a form of immigration law. So real open borders would mean you sell off federal lands and you let people camp out in Nevada or on the street. And I'm quite sure that over time that would happen in very great numbers, not in the first year, but over a period of 10 years, chain networks and institutions would develop where there would be communities of very poor people from every very poor country living on American streets. And because you had open borders, uh, you couldn't kick them out per se. Now, if a person is just saying, I don't really like formal immigration restrictions, I'm just gonna use NIMBY so that most of the countries like Beverly Hills and they can't come and replicate something like immigration restrictions, like, okay, but come on, you're not fooling anyone. Now the, you know, the would you kick them out argument, it's all about path dependence. Now you don't have to think yourself that nationality is morally significant. I'm not sure I do. But it's clear that most people do, virtually all people do. And one of the key central questions of politics is, how can we build a coherent polity? And you do that by creating some understanding of what we now call a nation state, though it's taken other forms and other eras. And that requires people to think differently about others, depending on their paths, when they came, how they came. It's highly path dependent. And you need that at some level to build a coherent cultural, political, national community. So you don't have to defend it morally from first principles to see you can't just toss it completely. Then you end up with what I consider to be the civilizational ending properties of open borders. I'm curious what you think about prospect of finding fulfilling work. This is a question I think that we don't really talk about enough in society. I agree, Marx was right in many ways. And it's an old story, but we've a bit forgotten it, especially on the free market side. Most jobs suck. Right. So if I go to a, I go to a career counselor or somebody who does jobs, who does you know job training, job counseling, that sort of thing, it seems like I either get one of two answers. I either get something very, very practical and boring, 
something that I spend a lot of my life at a job that I hate, or I get something about follow your dreams that seems, while inspiring, not very practical. And I'm wondering how we can think about finding fulfilling work that is has an element of practicality to it, but doesn't want to make you shoot yourself in the face. The question emailed to me virtually every day that I get the most times is people wanting advice on how to find fulfilling work, as if I would know. I have highly fulfilling work. It doesn't mean I know how they can get it. I mean, in defense of capitalism, in the past, it has always been worse, right? So it's clearly getting better. Work from home likely will help that, admittedly, with special problems for women with children. I think, you know, the world markets are tougher than ever before. Work from home means you have to compete against the whole world. And it will be harder for many Americans to get fulfilling work than it used to be. Easier for the world as a whole. But it's just such a slow process. And it strikes me as one of the great tragedies of our time that so many people, even in the very wealthiest countries, don't really have great jobs. I don't have any fix for it. And when these people email me, you know, I, my answers to them are usually pretty lame. I just like chess. I can play chess. I've played chess a few times. Never really stuck. Never really liked it much. Why should someone like me or my listeners care about chess? You shouldn't. Probably not. Uh, for some people, it's an addiction. Since I quit it, I can't say it's an addiction for me. Uh, it is something you can enjoy. And if you do it in very limited doses, it's a kind of sport. Uh, you can follow it for free. It's one of the virtues, right? It's an incredibly cheap pleasure. You can play online for free. So it, as addictions go, it's one of the better addictions. But there are plenty of smart people who didn't do great things in chess and really kind of, in my view, wasted their lives being chess players. Should Ken Rogoff have stayed in chess and been like world number 23? And then at age like 44, retired and taught the kids of rich people? No, we got Ken Rogoff, the IMF economist, Harvard tenured professor, and so on. You know, be careful with chess, fun in limited doses. I didn't ask you a question that I've asked you before, and one where I didn't really like your answer. I'm curious what, what you want your legacy to be. I remember your answer being something like, I don't really care what people think about my work after I'm gone. I have a big enough audience now. And I found that puzzling because I think intuitively or, or maybe in our bones, a lot of people really care about their legacy. Correct, like Robin Hansen will say this to me, but I disagree with Robin. I just see such rapid turnover in the world of ideas. Someone like Gary Becker, who not only was a Nobel laureate, but could have won three, four, maybe five prizes. He's not read anymore. He clearly has residual path dependent influence. Uh, but people have stopped having opinions about Gary Becker. So that's Gary Becker. What should I expect? I say, get over it. Try to do some good now. And, uh, you know, hope there's something after you're gone. But I suspect probably not. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, this isn't really so much that legacies are bad. It's that the odds of you leaving a legacy very long or very important is pretty low. And for most people. I would say very low, but I also have genuine uncertainties about how much we should respect the wishes of the dead, even the Tyler Cowen dead. I think it's possible the wishes of the dead shouldn't count. That would include my wishes now. So I should make some marginal attempt to liberate myself from that perspective that it matters. 
So a final question. I'm curious if you could tell us about a time in your professional or personal life when you failed spectacularly. And the reason I'm asking this question is because I don't think we talk enough about failure as a way to learn. I really admire people who fail and yet get up and try again. It's an underrated disposition. It's something that I really value in people. Um, and I think it's really, really important. Failure has a lot to teach us. So I'm curious what failures taught you in the past. Well, I've had plenty of failures. Like my first book published was called Explorations in the New Monetary Economics. And in like the marketplace, it was a total failure. I wrote a, published a book in 1997 called Risk and Business Cycles. Total failure. Someone in my position who is not like an elite macro person, if I try to do money macro, it's absolutely ignored or mocked or mainly ignored. And the two things I've done in that area uh, have been total failures. Uh, I could think of other examples, but that, that would be a good start. And I put really a lot of time, many years into those books. I still like them, frankly, but they're failures. And they're not going to somehow be revisited and there'll be some like warm glow the years later. Oh, people look back. Just there's too many new ideas coming too quickly for that to happen. Another way to ask this would be, how do you think about failure? How do you deal with it? What is the value of failure to you? I believe in a fair degree of oblivion. And I think that's helped me during my career. So I wouldn't say I wasn't aware of various failures, but I'm just like very focused on what's in front of me now. What I'm reading, what I'm trying to write, like favorite book is always the next one, kind of tunnel vision. So I don't feel any failures really set me back that much. Just like the, the engine keeps on running, so to speak. Uh, I would make a case for partial oblivion. Hello, Alan. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Jimmy.